You are now entering the transit zone. X the tax! X the tax! X the tax! Australian people own those resources and they deserve a fairer share from those resources to fund better super, better tax cuts for small business and better infrastructure for the future. I want to appeal to my fellow Australians in Sydney and Melbourne and all those who've been listening to the Prime Minister talking about their working families are going to do better. They're not. As this industry moves offshore, as the Australian industry shrinks, it will hurt the blue-collar worker more than the white-collar worker. Not a single mine will shut down because of this tax, because the reality is they'll continue to make profits. They'll continue to come to Australia to exploit natural resources because there is nowhere else in the world that has the political stability, uh, the economic infrastructure and the vast amounts of natural resources that we do in this country. Axe the tax! Axe the tax! The bell's ringing! Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. The Human Rights Law Centre is a non-government organisation with offices in Sydney and Melbourne. As part of its remit, it's running a campaign to bolster democratic vitality and practices here in Australia. As just one part of that campaign, the centre has released a report titled Selling Out, How Powerful Industries Corrupt Our Democracy. Of course, this is a very broad topic, but the report focuses on three industries, the fossil fuel sector, gambling and the tobacco industry. The report's author is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, Alice Drury. Alice Drury, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. Before we delve into this report itself, give us an overall context for how this report was actually forged. How did the brief arise? Who created that brief? And what was the general framing for the brief? So this report is part of a broader campaign called the Our Democracy Campaign that's being led by a few different organisations, Human Rights Law Centre, where I work, being one, and the Australian Conservation Foundation and a new organisation called the Australian Democracy Network. And so these three organisations have been pioneering this new campaign to strengthen our democracy. And it was a couple of years in the planning. I and my colleagues in those other organisations had long noticed a pattern where it didn't matter, you know, what issue we were working on, be it combating the climate crisis or reducing addiction to gambling, we just weren't getting progress on our issues. That's primarily because we were up against enormous industry with huge amounts of resources that each time we're just able to basically kibosh any attempt at common sense law reform that would be in the public interest. You used the word pattern there very interestingly. So as we go through our conversation, I think we're going to be looking at patterns. But there were assumptions then. You started with certain assumptions. You drew upon your colleagues league's experiences. What were those assumptions and what was the framing as you embarked upon the report? My work didn't start with the report. My work in this space started a couple of years ago with conversations with lots of folks who've been working in particularly the climate change space for quite a long time, but also in public health, 
So it's working on gambling, alcohol, tobacco addiction, etc. So we got all of these folks in the room to have a conversation and we all came to the same realisation that actually we were up against different industries that engaged in very similar practices, effectively with the same outcome, which was to use their levers of political power to block law reform. So underlying all that was some view, some framing again of what we mean by democracy. There were assumptions certainly around the, the concept and the practice of contemporary democracy. We, going into these conversations, firmly believed that there was a big gap between what was in the public interest and also what the public wants and the laws that we actually have in place in Australia. Looking at that gap, we sort of then went behind it and said, well, what's the cause of this? And what we uncovered was each of these industries are very, very politically active and they use common levers of influence to reach their political outcomes. You used the phrase a moment ago, what the public wants. So before we go and start looking at some of these levers of influence and power Mm. and persuasion, do you rely on surveys? How do you come up with a view of what the public wants? Polling, essentially. So yeah, there's there's lots of different organisations that do polling throughout the years they do it. And what we've been able to trace is that according to polling, there's been public support for laws that have nonetheless never come to pass. That's how we keep our finger on the pulse in terms of what the public actually wants. As I said, Alice, in my introduction, there are three industries or sectors we're going to be discussing today that are encompassed by your report, the tobacco industry, the gambling industry, and the fossil fuel sector. What drove the decision to focus on those three? It was a fairly pragmatic decision. There's been a lot already written and a lot of analysis already on those three different industries. So it was a space that we knew that we could put together a report that was pretty robust that told the story quite well and easily. There are also three industries that Australians understand what the harm is that they cause. What it does is just bring together in one place those stories that we've heard over about 15 years. So lots of people, lots of your listeners will know about the mining tax campaign, for instance, or they might remember the pushback against the carbon price. They might have also sort of seen the reporting from a couple of days ago about the $2 million going from fossil fuel companies to political parties. So what we decided to do was just bring together all of these stories that are actually kind of in isolation, commonly known, to put them together to say, look, look we are facing a pattern. These aren't one-off events. And it's a pattern that is uh, expressed across each of these three industries. They're not the only industries that we hope to focus on. This is kind of our first report of what we hope will be many. In future, we might decide to focus on the alcohol industry or big sugar or big pharmaceuticals. Let's start with the fossil fuel sector. That's probably the one that's front and centre in many of our listeners' minds, particularly Mm. with climate change, the approaching election. There are a number of levers you describe in the report. Let's put the spotlight initially, Alice, on donations. I find political donations an intriguing business because they're very veiled, aren't they? Quite opaque, even with declarations. But many of the big organisations put quite a whack of money, for example, into, say, the Liberal Party or coalition parties, and a small amount off to the side, maybe, for the Labor Party. What, in your view, in your delvings, have you come up with what draws big corporations to actually make political donations in the first place? How do they perceive it? What do they see is in it for them? You're right that political donations are actually quite a complicated space, um, and they're more complicated than maybe immediately meets the eye. I think 
corporations give for slightly different reasons. Some of them give, and we, we can only sort of deduce this because of the lack of transparency, but it does seem that some of them give at really key political moments. And what we can deduce from that is it's kind of a, look, if you oppose this policy, we will support you and we can give you more money. We will actually up our donations. So a good example of that is the Adani Coal Company gave a significant donation to the Liberal Party ahead of the last election, but gave no money to the Labor Party. Of course, remembering that the Labor Party was fairly ambivalent and split on Adani. So that did seem to be like a fairly clear instance of a mining company saying, look, if you support us, we will support you. Where it becomes a little bit more complicated is when you see companies give to both sides of the aisle. So often they give, as you say, slightly more to the Liberal Party and to the Nationals than they will give to Labor. But typically it's fairly evenly split, particularly in the lead up to an election. And that's a kind of hedging their bets. They're not entirely sure who's going to win the election. Regardless of who wins, they want to make sure they have a seat at the table. So they give generously to both sides. There's an exception to that if the Labor Party happens to have a policy in place that those mining companies don't like. Then we see they won't be giving to the Labor Party, they only give to the Liberals and to the Nats. Surrounding Adani, were all these figures about potential employment or prospective employment, and that goes with the coal industry more broadly, doesn't it, that it's going to create all these jobs and those coal electorates in Queensland, particularly with the Met Canavans, etc. We've talked about donations, but I'm just wondering how these corporations mesh with government in other ways. For example, when it comes to reliable data on prospective employment or impacts on the environment, emissions, etc., to what extent, in your view and in your analysis, does the government tend to accept corporations' own in-house data compared to their own examination, their own research? Do they rely a lot and take as gospel what a corporation tells them, for example, about, oh, we're going to employ this many people? I think there is a close collaboration between big business generally, but certainly the mining sector and the Liberal and the Nationals. Sometimes it seems like they've, well, often actually, it seems like they've gotten together beforehand to negotiate what the messaging lines are going to be ahead of time. Uh, And then they're both firmly, ferociously singing from the same song sheet. And I think a good example of that actually is the gas-led recovery. It seemed to be quite closely orchestrated between the government and fossil fuels leaders. Both were saying that it was necessary for Australia to rely on developing more natural gas extraction in order to get us through the pandemic. Whereas analysis from the Australia Institute indicated that if they'd put that money, that public money, effectively into any other industry, we would have seen better returns in terms of both employment and also economic recovery. So I think exactly as you say, I think the government relies too much not just on what the company lines are, it's like they're in lockstep and their futures are mutually assured. So there is a meshing and a synergy, if you like, in the propaganda that surrounds these political and corporate enterprises. But does it go another step, and you allude to this in the report, where a big corporation like Adani, that they actually attack people opposing them as well, and again, partly in lockstep with the government, like the Scott Morrison government, but undertaking their own quite intense and sometimes quite belligerent propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll see this in, like, in response to really key policy proposals that they see to be a threat to their profit margins. So we'll see peak bodies like the Minerals Council of Australia 
be especially hostile to Labor, because it is always Labor, when Labor comes out and announces a policy. And so it's in those kind of key moments that we see the uh, industry bring out effectively the big guns and just start to spend millions on public attack campaigns. How do you, Alice, verify in your research the decision-making chain? Is it mainly by deduction or can you peel back the covers a little and and track and and verify exactly what's happening between various players? I wish we could track and verify what's happening between particular players. That would be a dream. No, so much of what we know, we just have to deduce from the little data that we're able to glean. And I think... As you mentioned before, our political donations disclosure system is broken. Almost as much money is hidden as is declared. In terms of the timing of when donations are made, it's incredibly hard to make that out often and to tie it to a particular policy decision. Perhaps worst of all, our system allows politicians and professional lobbyists to meet in secret. So we have no idea who's meeting with them and trying to influence their decisions. And you'll see in the report, many of our asks are actually around transparency. And so at the very least, we can start to get a grip on who's got the most influence and how they're influencing our our decision makers. Talking of how, how did we finish up with a COVID recovery commission loaded to the gunnels with uh, gas industry executives? How did that happen? And the secrecy surrounding that. Remember what the Prime Minister Scott Morrison did in terms of try and put it under the covers of cabinet secrecy and cabinet confidentiality. How did we in Australia finish up with a commission like that? I think it's just that there's a complete cultural acceptance that that's the norm. And I think there's not a conceptual split for many ministers between the industry and government. And one of my favourite examples of this, actually, is when Senator Matt Canavan announced that he was stepping aside as Federal, Federal Minister for Resources in 2017. He said on his Facebook post that it has been such an honour to represent the Australian mining sector over the last year. His job isn't to represent the mining sector and their interests. His job is to regulate them in the public interest, which, of course, the Australian government continues to fail to do abysmally. We were a joke on the national stage in Glasgow. In answer to your question, how did the COVID commission end up being so blatantly stacked with fossil fuel execs? I don't think the government sees any problem in that because I don't think they see that there's this separation between what their job is and what the job of the mining sector is. In the political discourse, we hear a lot, and we're going to hear a lot more about the transition to a low-carbon economy in Australia, and we've seen lots of push and shove around electric vehicles and, of course, renewables themselves. And we know that there are huge subsidies, for example, to coal itself and to other fossil fuels, yet the government is very peevish about any sort of backing of the renewables sector in terms of energy. Do you see that as another overspill, if you like, from the the pulling of the levers by the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, I do. And I think the work of the Influence Map, which is a UK organisation, has been really important in this respect. They have gone through and methodically tracked the position of mining and fossil fuel companies publicly as against their record of supporting industry peak organisations like the Minerals Council of Australia, which tend to do like the company's dirty work. So you can have companies like Woodside and BHP come out and say really great things about renewables and themselves kind of cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions. But in the meantime, they're funnelling millions of dollars into the Minerals Council of Australia, which is kiboshing any attempts to invest more 
in renewables. So I think that's there's almost a direct line um, between what Minerals Council is pushing for and what the government's policy is. And hence we finish up in Australia with a very immature and hobbled electric vehicles market and that's a lot of that could be traced back to what's happening. I must say years and years ago I was doing a program on Radio National called Green and Practical and we went out and drove around a whole lot of electric vehicles. This is a, quite a few years ago. And then all of a sudden those electric vehicles disappeared. Mm. They just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I was reading reports later that the big car companies had a lot to do with mm. disappearing them because, and possibly the fossil fuel industry as well. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on, isn't there, behind the, behind the scenes. So much. And that would be another really wonderful case study <laughs> to do a bit of research into actually is, yeah, electric cars and um, the big automotive industry. Alice, it seems to me that one of the dimensions of all this and it's certainly relevant to the COVID Recovery Commission led by gas executives, is the role of secrecy generally, how opaque all these relationships are. To what extent do you believe and how significantly does secrecy play a role in the way corporations can and, as you put it in the report, do distort our democracy? Secrecy is key to how they can distort our democracy and that is one of the most significant metrics in which our government is declining. So be it cracking down on whistleblowers or obfuscating freedom of information requests, this coalition government has a terrible track record on secrecy. And it assists corporations as well. For as long as political donations aren't transparent, for as long as lobbying isn't transparent, we can't interrogate or even really know what their influence is. We can't bring it to the attention of the media and the Australian public can't do anything about it. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, Alice Drury, author of a centre report, Selling Out, How Powerful Industries Corrupt Our Democracy. Let's leave the fossil fuel sector smoking on the shelf just for a moment, shall we, and go to gambling. Now, this is an entirely different sector. We were talking about fuels and stuff you dig out of the ground and physical product, if you like, and all that goes with it. But now we're talking about something much more abstract and something about human nature. We're great gamblers in Australia, as we know. Gambling is such an odd business, isn't it? Chance and guessing. And as we know, in casinos and particularly for pokies, it's rigged effectively, isn't it? It's, it's in the favour of the house all the time. Pokies are based on computers now, easily programmable to make sure that the poor old gambler with their little with their little cup of coins are going to lose most of the time. So gambling is a fascinating and very influential sector in Australia. How did you approach gambling differently from talking about fossil fuels? They're very different to examine? Coming at it from a policy perspective, I wish they were more different. What was revealed quite quickly is they rely on much the same political tactics to exert influence. And any of your listeners that have ever played Candy Crush or enjoy doing Wordle every day will know about what that sparks in everyone's psychology, which is a little bit of stress relief. Um, it's a little bit of switching off. And that's how gambling works exactly the same way, in particular pokies, which are the most harmful form of gambling in Australia. People do it as a little bit of stress relief. And that can very quickly spiral out of control. And it does spiral out of control because pokies are designed to spiral out of control. And virtually any attempt to regulate pokies, certainly in the last 20 years, 
uh, has been met with an incredibly aggressive campaign by the gambling industry that, like fossil fuels, involves giving well-timed political donations to influence elected representatives' decision-making. It involves hiring teams of lobbyists to swarm parliament to ensure that backbenchers are poised to come out against any minister that wants to regulate the industry. And finally, when that fails, it involves spending millions in public attack campaigns to shut down any politician that wants to regulate, in particular pokies, but effectively the whole industry. So I wish I found more difference between the practices of the two industries, but they were depressingly similar. Are there different subsectors within what we call the gambling industry? I'm thinking of the doggies and the ponies, of course, and that's much more traditional. And you sort of feel that if you make a judgment about how fast a horse is going to run, that feels slightly different from putting your coins down a pokey machine, which is you must well just chuck it down a hole in the ground, really. But are there different subsectors? And now my mind is particularly moving to online gambling. Are they a very different sort of sector in terms of their tactics or are they really just part of the same deal? It's a good question. There are certainly most of gambling's influence is exerted through in particular two peak organisations. One is the Australian Hotels Association and the other one is Clubs New South Wales. There are other branches across the country but Clubs New South Wales is by far the most powerful. AHA primarily represents clubs that operate pokies, clubs and hotels that operate pokies. So that's kind of where their focus is. But in terms of what they do to exert influence, it's fairly similar across the board. I haven't seen bookies engage in the same level of political pressure that I've seen like clubs do to protect their ability to run pokies. But one thing I didn't look into actually was like the resistance to regulating dog racing more tightly and horse racing more tightly. And I think that influence will certainly be more expressed at state level because it's typically regulated at state level, whereas I was focusing on national regulation. Just quickly benchmarking this industry, gambling against what we were saying about fossil fuels, much the same sort of lots of lobbyists you mentioned, donations, the propaganda, the resistance campaigns, very similar really overall to... You mentioned the pattern, very similar pattern. Very similar pattern. It's often said that, in fact, other industries like the gambling industry have taken a leaf out of the fossil fuels book. Everyone now follows the example of the mining tax campaign, which was seen as just a huge success. So that's very much like spurred on other industries like gambling, like tobacco, to do the same when they're facing regulation that would hurt their bottom line. The third of the trilogy of sectors that you highlight in this report, Alice, is tobacco. Now, tobacco, anybody who's been awake the last 20, 30 years knows that tobacco as an industry has a very deep history here in Australia and in the United States. We all remember those executives getting up in front of Congress, those congressional hearings, etc., and swearing blind that there was nothing wrong. And we've heard a lot of the stories come out now about the way they squished their own internal reporting about the harm of nicotine, etc. It's got a, a deep history. And of course, we've now got plain paper packaging in Australia. We've got health warnings. We stopped tobacco advertising on TV. So you'd perhaps initially think, oh, tobacco's had, had its wings clipped over and over again within Australia. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a somewhat fair assessment up until recently. And why has regulating the tobacco industry been a success whereas regulating gambling and fossil fuels hasn't? One thing I know, we've had these successes against the tobacco industry because of the fearless, tireless campaigning of public health advocates. For that matter, people with lived experience as well. People have actually suffered horrible health outcomes as a result of smoking. 
The thing that's changing now and giving me some cause for concern is that now e-cigarettes and vaping is taking off in a big way in Australia and internationally. And the tobacco companies are seeing this as a lifeline. They're seeing this as a huge opportunity for them to reinvent themselves and to start to push out addiction through a different means and through something that might be not just more socially acceptable but certainly has this sense of it being healthier than smoking so it should be fine. What view have you come to with this research and your earlier delvings into what deeper down drives all this? Is it the corporate cultures, the bonuses that executives get, the profit motive itself, which is a very strong driver in so much of what goes on in our largely capitalist sort of society? Is it those things? Does it come back to one word ultimately, money? It's all about money. And the very purpose of a company, you know, publicly listed companies to make more money for their shareholders. That is their purpose. You know, that, that's what they have to by law focus on. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that they engage in all sorts of tactics to ensure that they can achieve that purpose. I think it also comes down to a very neoliberal culture that we have in Australia and in the West generally, where we accept all of this as business as usual and we accept this kind of rampant capitalism as if it was neutral. It's not neutral. It's hugely damaging. It's anti-democratic. But it's become acceptable and part of the norm. And I think another part of the problem is is that every time we talk about this, the Australian public blames politicians, which makes us more disappointed and disaffected with democracy, which means we disengage more, which allows more of this to happen. So it's a bit of a kind of vicious feedback cycle. We've heard a bit about the report, and I'm going to be putting a link up so people can really get into the report itself. But let's look at the style of the report. The tone of the report is highly aimed at persuasion and fundamental critique, and you'll echo that in some of your comments in the transit zone today. It's not at all dispassionate. Now, moving to a wider lens, we get a lot of different reports from, at one end of the political spectrum, the Institute of Public Affairs and the Australian Institute at the other end of the spectrum. A lot of think tanks in Australia and overseas They put out very detailed work. As the average lay citizen, how should I be reading these reports? How reliable are they? And when I feel like someone like you is trying to persuade me of something in a report like this, should I be suspicious? How do I generate trust in the reliability of these sort of reports? I thoroughly encourage absolutely everyone to read my report very critically. So I'm obviously coming at this. I'm not an academic. I'm a human rights lawyer and I'm working on a campaign to end corporate influence in our politics. Obviously, that positions me in a particular light. And we've written this report, not as an academic report, but it's completely dispassionate. It is a, effectively a campaign document that puts all of the um, these stories of corporate influence in the wrong place to support uh, people to go and meet their MPs and draw on the report and say, look, I'm sick of this because I have all of this evidence here in front of me. So if you're reading the report, that's obviously important to know where I'm coming from. If you're reading critically, though, there's so many footnotes in the report, um, many, many, many of them, and everything has been obviously very thoroughly researched. Um, So I encourage readers to go and click on each of the links if you want to get behind it, if you you have questions about anything that's written in there. The research is, is right there for you to do your own reading. And as I mentioned before, very little in the report is actually new. It's all stuff that's been well articulated in the mainstream press and in academic journals, or it comes straight from the company's own public disclosures. The thing that we've done is just put it in the one place. 
and also spoken about the human cost of this because so often we start talking about who's given X million of millions of dollars um, to the major parties. What's not included in that is the stories of people who are suffering very real harm as a result of the policy settings that we have in this country. So that was the other really important thing that we wanted to do with this report is like ground it in the impact that it's having on our communities. It's interesting you chose those particular corporate sectors because there's another one, really the elephant in the room these days, isn't it? And that's the the internet, the informational corporations, the big social media, the fact Google, the big search engines, etc., the behemoths, if you like, which many would argue have turned us into data peasants around the world, almost a, a neo-feudalism. Would that interest you to, to take your campaign further and investigate that rather layered and complex dimension of our lives? Oh, it definitely would. And in fact, another part of our campaign does is around addressing disinformation and the uh, impact that the spread of disinformation is having on our democracy. Up until fairly recently, the digital giants haven't been as proactive in Australian politics and they've not been around as long, so they haven't built those very like deep political connections that we see with these other three industries. Um, but I think that's likely to have changed over the last couple of years, particularly since they sort of went up against traditional media platforms and found themselves being regulated in a way that they didn't like. So that's certainly something that we would want to look into to see if their political influence has been changing. And we'll be focusing in on the disinformation space because these digital platforms need to be regulated in order to combat disinformation. So where do you sit in the platform versus publisher type argy-bargy that's been going on almost since the internet and certainly since the beginning of social media and those big platforms. We are a platform, we are not a publisher and then gradually as they started embracing great strands of journalism and and literature and information etc, that is really sitting at the nub of some of the arguments at the moment as we're seeing right at the moment with Spotify and the Rogan podcast versus Neil Young pulling his music off uh, Spotify. For Spotify, it's about keeping Rogan because there's a lot of money coming in from those podcasts, which they purchased exclusively. But of course, music's very important to their income as well. So platform publisher, is that going to be something you investigate? It will be. It's something we've already done a little bit of work into. Look, whether they're a platform or a publisher means a little bit less to me than where are they making their billions and they are, in part, making their billions and profiting from the spread of really harmful disinformation that is that is ruining and taking people's lives. frame that I always apply is, like, who has the power to do something about this? Well, obviously, it is the platforms that have the power to do much about this. So, question, do we want them to hold all of that power? No, we absolutely do not. We need a regulator to step in to assist the platforms to ensure that the harm being caused on their platforms is minimised. We started our conversation talking about democracy, and that really is the frame around our conversation, democracy. So, as a final question, it's become a commonplace that democracy is in retreat around the world. Just look at the three big Anglosphere democracies, the United Kingdom, which is in a real mess at the moment with Boris Johnson, maybe on the skids, maybe not. The United States is in a real pickle, isn't it, in the post-Trump period, but with the big lie still holding enormous sway within that country and a lot of voter suppression going on. And here in Australia, I don't think our democracy is in the greatest state of health either. So it has become a commonplace to talk about democracy as being in retreat. We've got a lot of other facadist democracies, like Hungary, for example, where it looks like a democracy, but it's an autocracy in effect. So what 
as you do your work, what are the fundamental planks of contemporary democracy that you retain as your givens, your bedrock? The most important thing that we can do in combating this kind of global tide against democracy is to talk about its strengths, talk about why it's important, and start from a sort of strengths-based messaging um, about it because it's very, very, very easy for us all to pile on about how terrible politics is, but the less we trust in it, the more terrible it will become. The thing that we need to fix primarily, uh, it's not laws, as hard as that is for me to say as a lawyer, it's our culture around democracy, and we need to get Australians talking about the ways in which our democracy is excellent uh, and the ways in which it could be improved and changing the social licence so that when companies and politicians do the wrong thing, there is actually a political cost at the other end. It's not seen as business as usual anymore. They will lose their seat or you know, that company will they'll lose customers, etc. The most important thing that we can do is to start investing in the strengths of our democracy and reminding ourselves of how important it is. You know, recently there was some polling to indicate that young people weren't convinced that democracy was the best form of government. We need to start there. They need to understand how very vital it is because democracy is what every single other issue relies on. If we want to see action on climate change, we need a strong democracy. If we want to see voice treaty truth in the First Nations justice space, then we need a strong democracy. The way that we talk about democracy is the most vital thing. And the more that we talk about it being in decline, the more collectively we'll start to switch off and the more it will decline. Alice Drury, thank you for the report. It's a very interesting report. As I said, I'll put the link up so people can delve into it. And I take your advice on the footnotes. There's a wealth of information there in the footnotes. And they're all clickable, I think, all those footnotes, aren't they, on, in the online version? They are. Yeah. So very easy to, to do that digging and to read up on some of the reference points. Thank you very much for that report. And thank you very much for being with us in the Transit Zone. Thanks so much for your time, Peter. Appreciate it. Our guest in the Transit Zone, Alice Drury, a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. She authored the report we've been discussing, Selling Out, How Powerful Industries Corrupt Our Democracy. It's definitely worth reading. There's a link to that report with the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.